Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with warnings from the White House that a war over Ukraine could break out at any moment, with U.S. intelligence reports suggesting it could happen as early as Wednesday. Joining us is Adam Tooze, a professor of history at Columbia University and the author of a number of books including Wages of Destruction, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World, and most recently, Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. He previously taught at the University of Cambridge as well as Yale, where he was Director of International Security Studies and has contributed to the National Intelligence Council and blogs at adamtoos.substack.com, where his latest article is Permanent Crisis or Black Earth Agrogiant, Alternative Futures for Ukraine. We'll discuss the current crisis, but also the continuing one for Ukraine, since Ukraine's economic performance between 1990 and 2017 was not just worse than its European neighbours, it was the fifth worst in the entire world, placing it amongst the four countries that delivered less growth for their citizens than Ukraine were the Democratic Republic of Congo, Burundi and Yemen. Then we look into the deal the Biden administration is offering to the 23 million starving Afghans whose national currency reserves of $7 billion held in New York are to be split in half between paying the families of victims of 9-11 and setting up a trust fund to somehow get humanitarian aid to Afghanistan without dealing with the Taliban government. Joining us to discuss what he sees as the theft of savings from ordinary Afghans is Zach Copland, an investigator for the Government Accountability Project and a columnist for The Guardian, whose investigations have included opposing science denial legislation, revealing police and judicial misconduct, and uncovering corruption in Afghanistan. Then finally, we'll speak with Jen Senko, an award-winning documentary filmmaker, media activist, and author of the new book based on her documentary of the same name, The Brainwashing of My Dad, how the rise of the right-wing media changed a father and divided our nation, and how we can fight back. She is the co-author with Mike Lofgren of an article at Common Dreams, It's Time the Pentagon Pulled the Plug on Fox News, and we'll discuss how Fox's propaganda encouraging insurrection and opposition to vaccination is undermining our military and national security. And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent, Your support for this program is vital to keep us broadcasting online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. Since we operate on a low budget, we are asking you to take a moment to visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests both at home and around the world. And to those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we have now made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card. So if you're in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable to, please go to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or to publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Adam Tooze, a professor of history at Columbia University and the author of a number of books, including Wages of Destruction, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World, and most recently, Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. 
He previously taught at the University of Cambridge as well as Yale, where he was Director of International Security Studies, and he has worked in executive development with major corporations and contributed to the National Intelligence Council and blogs at adam2s.substack.com, where his latest article is Permanent Crisis or Black Earth Agrogiant Alternative Futures for Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Adam Tooze. Pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And on Saturday, President Biden and President Putin had a conversation over an hour long, but it sounds like it was the same conversation they've been having for months where Putin keeps saying you're not addressing our central concerns and the White House keeps pointing out the grave consequences of sanctions, etc., if Russia were to uh, move militarily against Ukraine. So at this point, U.S. intelligence is suggesting that an attack could take place as early as Wednesday. What do you think the chances are here? You know, on the Russian side, of course, they say the West is being hysterical. Yeah, I mean, I'm no military expert or intelligence analyst, but the folks who are have been telling us for some time that this is the timeline, right, that it was going to be around the middle of February, that uh, Russia had the military hardware and personnel in place to mount a large scale offensive. And I guess they're able to judge that on the basis of various, you know, from an economist speak, you might say, like key elements in the military supply chain. Have they got the right bits in the right place to do the sort of things that you would be doing and to have all the options on the table? And my sense, probably, unless there is extra military intelligence that goes beyond this, is essentially what they're saying is that by the middle of next week, they think the hospitals, the large ammo dumps, the right personnel will be in the right place for them to be able to have all the options. I mean, Russia has the kind of military resources that means it could strike Ukraine in lots of different ways on any given day of the week. But to have all of, as it were, the capacities in place to have the full range of options between selective strikes and full-scale invasion, I think that's what they're really saying. And that that will be completed by the middle of next week. They've been saying that for weeks now. Um, And what's really striking is that the Americans are doing this very publicly, right? So there are ways and ways of handling a crisis like this. And the Biden administration seems to be gambling that, as it were, outing the escalation on the Russian side, putting it on the, you know, in the headlines of every single newspaper in the world every single day, is the way of really forcing the Russian hand. Um, that seems to be the, the, these are the tactics, I guess, on the American side. But as, as uh, we speak, Adam Tooze, Ukraine is surrounded on three sides by massive Russian military forces. And there's an exercise in the north with uh, Belarus, and apparently the highway straight down to Kyiv is pretty much open. And uh, on the Black Sea, they've just deployed uh, six amphibious assault ships. So uh, <laughs> if you were in Ukraine, even though Zelensky is telling everybody to be calm, you surely have, have got to be concerned, right? I mean, why? This doesn't normally happen, does it? A country s- surrounds a neighbor with massive military force. Well, this is the second time in 12 months, right? So there was a similar build-up, I mean, not, not to the same degree um, as we're seeing now, but it's taken weeks to get to this current pitch. But if you'd asked this question back in early January, you would have said that we're, you know, this is this is round two, because the, the first build-up came in the spring of last year. And um, 
so no, I mean, this is extraordinarily ominous. There's no question. I mean, by all accounts and from everything one can see, large parts of Ukrainian society are, is simply carrying on as per normal. I mean, you, you see a lot of engaged folks, journalists, politically active people. There are clearly patriotic demonstrations in the streets, as you might imagine. How far this affects the broader Ukrainian society, it's difficult to judge from the outside. And I'm absolutely no specialist in Ukrainian politics or Ukrainian society. But I mean, it's I mean, it's terrifying enough for us. So so I, one can only imagine how how nervous one makes this must make people feel. And of course, casualties would be massive civilian casualties. And uh, the thing to reckon with, yeah, I mean, like, because there's quite a lot of loose talk about, you know, patriotic resistance and insurgency and so on. But I think we should be clear about what that implies, which is a Syrian scenario. And um, that, after all, is a battlefield in which the Russians have ample experience. I mean, their air force in particular is, I mean, every single squadron has had experience in Syria. They know what modern, large-scale urban warfare looks like, and it's absolutely horrific. So, um, yeah. With most of the casualties, civilians. Absolutely, with huge civilian casualties and total disruption of ordinary life and, you know, just just, uh, ghastly levels of Mm -hmm. horror. And again, I'm speaking with Adam Tooze, a professor of history at Columbia University and the author of a number of books, including Wages of Destruction, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World, and most recently, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. He previously taught at the University of Cambridge as well as Yale, where he was Director of International Security Studies, and he's worked in executive development with several major corporations and contributed to the National Intelligence Council and blogged at adamtoos.substack.com, where his latest article is Permanent Crises or Black Earth Agro-Giant Alternative Futures for Ukraine. So I want to talk to you about Ukraine's Black Earth, its agricultural riches, but just to finish up on on the possible scenarios here, it seems to be there's sort of three possible scenarios that Putin will continue to destabilize Ukraine and, you know, do the, what they call the salami tactic of slicing and nibbling off pieces of, of Ukraine to diminish its sovereignty. And he could try and destroy its sovereignty outright with an attack on Kiev and an occupation and put in a puppet government. Or he could somehow get the the West to agree on the, on the Minsk II agreement, which, of course, is political suicide for the Ukrainian government. So those are the alternatives. Do you see any other alternative there? Well, I think a, a sort of supplement to your option one, um, which is that um, they don't they don't engage in any overt aggression or attempt to slice off any further territory, as you put it, but just simply maintain the pressure um, because from Russia's point of view, this is more easy to sustain than it is from the point of view of Ukraine. I mean, arguably, it's more easy for the Russians to sustain than it is for us, for Europe and for the United States. Um, Certainly in terms of the political cycle in Russia, Putin has more options than President Biden does. And Europe is painfully exposed to, you know, its need for gas imports from Russia. So, I think that's another scenario. I think I continue to think it's the most likely one, which is that the Russians go on saying that there's nothing unusual happening here other than that them they're deploying their military forces. They're entirely entitled to do with their allies and on their own sovereign territory. And the fact that it scares Jesus out of the rest of us is our problem. 
uh, and points to a series of unresolved issues which we are refusing to address and they will continue to ask to have addressed and that kind of you know they they will remain in this position of of tension um which is easier for them to maintain than 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 for us i would submit so i think that's I think the other options, I mean, just a plain, you know, a pullback on the Russian side is difficult to imagine. Uh, they would have to do that very slowly, I think, to avoid the impression of, of a defeat. And I do think that an outright invasion, full scale occupation and an effort to install the more amenable regime. I mean, I think the, the Russians are fully realistic enough to know that they would be governing not against the totality of Ukrainian polity, but against a large part if, and a solid majority, I think, of it at this point. And I don't think they have they can possibly have any interest in that. Maybe some sort of invasion of the type they did in Georgia in 2008, where it's kind of punitive and you march to within, you know, eyesight, if you like, of the of the country's capital and then pull back again. One could imagine that. But I, I think all of those are very high stakes options and i continue to think that from moscow's point of view the best option is this sort of siege essentially well in terms of ukraine's economy it's pretty precarious is it not you, uh, yeah. you point out in your article that ukraine's performance economic performance between 1990 and 2017 was not just worse than its european neighbors it was the fifth worst in the entire world and among the four countries that delivered less growth for their citizens than Ukraine were the Democratic Republic of Congo, Burundi, and Yemen. So that's extraordinary to have a European country in, in those categories. So the oligarch who supported Zelensky, who was elected with 70% of the vote, largely because he promised to get peace with Russia, which has not happened, now he's, his fortunes are way down to about 30%, although I believe... The Ukrainian people are sticking with him because he's he's the only leader they have under the, in this crisis situation. But he's tied in with an oligarch who took down a big bank that he owned and stole five billion dollars. So that is also a problem, is it not? Endemic corruption, and that of course would lead to a lack of foreign investment. Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, one should say. You know, I mean, I, I went digging for this data because I did a sort of surface cut of this question some weeks ago now and came up with these World Bank data on growth rates and, and was so shocked by them that I began to worry that I was, you know, unwittingly replicating some, you know, anti-Ukrainian propaganda and and dug deeper and, and unearthed this even more, the, the data that you're just mentioning, I mean, which is truly staggering. Um Yes, fifth worst growth rate in the world over the period since between 1990 and 2017. Folks will ask, well, is that to do with the shock of Russia's intervention in 2015? It, it probably that certainly didn't help, but that doesn't explain the stagnation through to 2015. So if you if you slice those data slightly differently to exclude the period of open Russian aggression, it wouldn't change the story. It's worth adding that. Um, the crucial point to make, of course, is that Ukraine is not subsisting at the levels of GDP that Burundi or Yemen or the Democratic Republic of Congo are. It subsists at a level which is, as far as we can guess, and these are very complicated, are you know somewhat artificial statistical constructs. But for what they're worth, it seems to subsist at a level of GDP per capita 20% below the late Soviet period. So speaking to Ukrainian sociologists, they will say, in a sense, their country has been in a perpetual crisis since the Brezhnev era of the 1970s. 
and really has not moved out of that space in in half a century, which is which I think then explains everything else in a sense, right? Because on the one hand, with the end of communism, what then is unleashed is this free for all, get rich quick, get very very rich quite quickly kind of oligarchic, highly corrupt political economy, which we saw in many of the post-Soviet states. And and then, as you say, a stagnation, despite the considerable, both human resources, I mean, all of the post-Soviet states, both populations with remarkably high levels of education, great natural, you know, great talent pool, basically, in, say, the IT sector. And then in the Ukraine's case, um, assets, you know, uh, heavy industrial assets from the Soviet period, which are not worthless. And then finally, of course, the natural endowment of Ukraine, which which has just stupendous agricultural potential, always has. And uh, the, the, it, that, I think, makes the, the failure of the last you know, 20 years so so extraordinary. So on the one hand, it subsists at a level much higher than Democratic Republic of Congo. But of course, it also has advantages that should enable it to grow at least like a Poland or like Russia. And, and it, it, it's very difficult to see how any politician maintains legitimacy in a country which which fails at that elementary level. And well, the article points out that Ukraine is a home to a quarter of the fertile black earth soil on this planet. Uh, so there's a massive potential there, is there not? Absolutely. I mean, this is this legendary um, hummus, basically. You know, it's the result of the most most rich um, bedding down of organic um, plant matter. And um, it should make that entire region into one of the granaries of the world. And, and you know, in fairness, uh, Ukraine is one of the largest suppliers of grain and agro-industrial products to global markets. I mean, it's the one area of the world economy where it really does play a significant part. And were war to break out um, and uh, trade to be totally disrupted, it would have a very considerable impact on grain markets. And some of the most vulnerable buyers of grain, Lebanon, for instance, is extremely heavily dependent on grain shipments from Ukraine. And, you know, if there's a country in the in the world which doesn't need an additional shock, it's Lebanon. Um, so, yes, U- Ukraine has huge potential. One of the problems is that the land was, when they privatized it, they were worried for obvious reasons about rampaging robber baron capitalists seizing control of this land, Russian and others. And so one of the things they did when they introduced full-scale privatization in 2001 is they made the land, you know, you can't buy and you can't sell it. And as a result, you can't mortgage it either. So um, the land was uh, the big capital rich businesses have gone in and leased huge tracts of land on long term leases. But there hasn't been a private land market, which is often considered by development economists as a key element to a certain sort of, you know, capitalist, small scale capitalist, um, small scale peasant um, farmer model of economic development. And one of the provisions uh, of that land reform, and there's, I think, land reform, just passed uh, in the rider, the Ukrainians are, what, 80% are opposed to foreign ownership of their land. Absolutely. So this is, you know, the big story about the Lezinsky government, which has been sort of buried by all of the dramas, which, which is that very much at the insistence of the World Bank and the IMF, which made it a condition of their latest support package for Ukraine, that the Ukrainian parliament, with his big majority, bit the bullet and actually introduced a land reform law, which came into effect on the 1st of July last year, which does make packages up to 100 hectares so far, 
saleable and therefore also available for mortgaging. And then even more remarkably, later that fall in the in the fall of 2021, they actually passed an agricultural credit law, which is like one of these first lost backstop facilities where the Ukrainian government puts up a, a, a fund and uh, essentially promises to indemnify banks against losses they incur if they lend to small farmers, enabling therefore private credit to provide finance. So that they've actually done all of this. Um, it was quite controversial. You know, the usual suspects were opposed. But one of the key issues in that absolutely is that the land was not made available for purchase by foreign investors. And Zelensky originally wanted to push that through. No doubt the IMF and the World Bank favour it. And their modelling suggests you'd get even bigger growth effects if the land was available for uh, for foreign purchase. Surprise, surprise. Um, but the uh, Ukrainian parliament wasn't wearing that. So Zelensky promised a referendum on this issue. And according to opinion polling done by local sociological institutes, 80 percent of Ukrainians would oppose. So that's not happening. So it's going to remain a, a national land market. Um, but we'll see. I mean, if we can get if we can get through this crisis, that's one of the tragedies right, of the current moment is that, you know, we're, we're obsessing about tanks and drones and multiple rocket launchers and, you know, the ghastly weapons of destruction rather than thinking constructively about how Ukraine might be put on a more stable footing. But all of this is interlinked because the fundamental reason why y Ukraine is never really going to be a serious candidate for membership in either the EU or NATO, not in the medium term, a matter of decades, is its underdevelopment. I mean, it's, it's the failure of its political economy, the poverty, the corruption, the dysfunction that results from that, that means that that on the one hand, its governments lurch back and forth between Moscow and the West, looking for advantage, looking for an edge, looking for something, some kind of something that will allow them to pull themselves out of this quagmire. And on the other hand, those 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 fantasies, those promises which are made to the Ukrainian public are completely unrealistic. So there's a real tragic element to this situation. And as you point out, the war that began in 2013-2014 that's continued with 14,000 Ukrainian casualties was not about NATO, but a rivalry between the EU and Russia. And yes. that continues, right? Just yes, I mean, it's, in fairness, one should say that from Russia's point of view, the EU and NATO are the same thing. And from the point of view of many of the Baltic states, Poland, the Scandinavians, who also have moved towards EU membership as part of an alignment with the West, they're also the same thing. And historically speaking, the EU, um, you know, emerged in the Cold War period very much as part of the socio-economic glacis, if you like, of the of NATO in the Cold War. But specifically in 2013, yes, the issue between uh, Russia and the West was the was the the offer by Brussels for, or rather, the insistence on Ukraine in desperately trying to apply for a grade of not full membership or even, you know, being on the membership track, but a kind of association agreement with the EU that would have given uh, Ukraine various types of advantages um, for trade and for investment. But what happened is that, you know, though this was sold to the Ukrainian population by the then president as, as it were, the panacea for Ukraine's problems, when you do a deal with the EU, as say the Brits have discovered over Brexit or the Greeks discovered during the Eurozone financial crisis, they are an incredibly tough bargaining partner. They're very demanding. So every deal comes with a long list of conditionality. And they're, they're, they're really um, stintflint when it comes to money. So there was, in fact, no money on the table, no significant amount of money on the table. I mean, the, the oligarchs that run Ukraine were like indignant that their personal fortunes were larger than 
the kind of money that the EU is putting on the table in this bargain. And Putin knows the scene and came along with a much more generous offer and bounced the Ukrainian government into accepting that instead because they were caught between a rock and a hard place. And that's what's unleashed them, the, you know, the Maidan protests and so on, opening the door to the collapse of the regime and, and, the, and the Russia's intervention in 2014 to rescue what it could from you know, the situation. So um, yeah, it, it, absolutely. It was a struggle over socioeconomic issues in 2013, in which the EU was the principal partner, not not NATO, that that opened the current phase. From Russia's point of view, of course, the timeline looks different. I mean, the two data points for them are 2008, when at the Bucharest meeting of NATO, the Bush administration bounced the other NATO members into offering, indeed, they wrote it in so many words, Ukraine and Georgia will join NATO. And Russia responded to that by choosing the first possible opportunity to deliver a very harsh lesson to the Georgians. And before that, the key moment uh, from from the Russian point of view is the intervention of NATO in the former Yugoslavia in the late in the late 1990s, without proper legal backing, without proper UN backing. And that really taught Moscow the lesson that, you know, the rules of international law apply to the weak, whereas the strong, powerful members of NATO pick and choose when they will when they will um, respect the sovereignty provisions that you might think that UN charter guarantees. Well, Adam Toos, I thank you so much for joining us here today. It's a pleasure. And again, I mean, speaking with Adam Toos, a professor of history at Columbia University and the author of a number of books, including Wages of Destruction, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World, and most recently, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World Economy. He previously taught at the University of Cambridge as well as at Yale, where he was the director of the International Security Studies, and he has contributed to the National Intelligence Council and blogs at adamtoos.substack.com, where his latest article is Permanent Crisis or Black Earth Agro-Giant, Alternative Futures for Ukraine. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking to the deal the Biden administration is offering the 23 million starving Afghans whose national currency reserves of $7 billion held in New York are to be split in half between paying the families of the victims of 9-11 and setting up a trust fund to somehow get humanitarian aid to Afghanistan without dealing with the Taliban government. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Zach Coplin, who's an investigator for the Government Accountability Project and a columnist for The Guardian, whose investigations have included opposing science denial legislation, revealing police and judicial misconduct, and uncovering corruption in Afghanistan. Welcome to Background Briefing, Zach Coplin. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. And it's sort of not getting a lot of attention the, uh, that President Biden on Friday has decided to clear the path to give $3.5 billion of frozen Afghanistan central bank funds deposited in the New York Federal Reserve, half of it to the uh, victims of 9-11 and the other half put into a trust to help the humanitarian problem in Afghanistan or the humanitarian disaster in Afghanistan and somehow get help to the Afghan people as opposed to give the money to 
the Taliban. I'm not sure how they're going to accomplish that, but we can talk about it. But in general, there was so much attention on Afghanistan when the U.S. pulled out, so much criticism of Biden from both the press and from the Republicans. But the feeling I have now is that, do you think Americans care about Afghanistan? I So in my personal opinion, to answer that one, um, I don't think Americans have cared about Afghanistan in a very long time. And this latest decision by Biden is more evidence of that. To me, it's and again, in my opinion, it's absolutely horrifying and arguably a war crime. To basically punish the Afghan people? I mean, in other words, yeah. your feeling is that taking this money is some sort of theft, do you think? Um, yes. I mean, so, others have suggested that. How would you describe it? So to think about this money, there's two pieces, right? Um, this money comes from the Afghan Central Bank. And so it belongs to the, it doesn't belong to the Taliban. It belongs to the Afghan people. Um, and this includes the life savings of a lot of Afghan citizens that are frozen in New York. Biden is taking this money from people who had nothing to do with 9-11, who many of them weren't even alive when 9-11 happened. He's taking money directly from them and using it to pay the victims. And again, if, the, if, if, paying, if we want to give $3.5 billion to the victims of 9-11 right now, just do it. Take the money from the U.S. government and pay it. Don't steal the money from starving people in a country that we've occupied for 20 years, that we've bombed, that we've enabled corruption. I mean, again, what is happening in Afghanistan right now lies firmly on President Biden, Trump, Obama, and Bush. I mean, that is who is responsible for this current situation and, and taking their life savings, taking their bank's financial liquidity away and causing a financial crisis and using it to, again, pay... Americans who were, again, victims, but had nothing to do, the people who were paying for this had nothing to do with the people who victimized these Americans, and B, to aid organizations who are going to, again, pay off lawyers in New York, are going to pay uh, military contractors, will pay bribes to the Taliban with this money. I mean, this money is not going, this money belongs to the Afghan people, including their life savings, and they won't see it. And that, to me, just, it's looting, it's not, like, it's not that's not legal under international law, in my opinion. But how do you get money to the Afghan people? So this is a very hard policy question. And I'm I'm certainly not going to pretend to be the expert on how do you do this. Again, this will be, this is my personal opinion, is we should accept the consequences of the decisions we've made. I don't like the Taliban. I think they are awful. I think they're human rights abusers. But we gave up between the U.S. military occupation and the Ghani administration that we were propping up. We gave them Kabul. We made our choice. We shouldn't starve the people of Afghanistan in retaliation. And so I think we should just, again, let the banks have their money back, let the people have their life savings back. And again, because you can say, oh, no, we can't give it back to the Taliban because they're human rights abusers. But why didn't President Biden evacuate anyone from Afghanistan who wanted it? Why are Afghans stuck in refugee camps in the UAE? And Iran, why aren't we taking more Afghan refugees? Why aren't we helping anyone get out of the country, right? So if, if we're going to hold up our hands and say, oh, no, we can't give this money to an evil regime, but anything meaningful that we could have actually done to help people suffering in Afghanistan, we said, oh, no, that's too politically difficult. Oh, no, the Republicans won't like that. Oh, no, people don't like refugees. So we can't actually help them despite the fact that we occupied their country. It just rings hollow. And, and the answer to me, again, it's certainly not looting this money and giving it to Americans. That just is horrifying. 
But since Pakistan always wanted this outcome and continued to stab the US in the back in terms of its efforts and money, and after all, the US did spend a ton of money Mm -hmm. on the Afghan military, and they decided not to fight. So that may contribute to America's lack of interest in the country. If they can't even defend their own country, why? I mean, I'm not condoning the callousness of this decision. Um, I would would push back on that, which is, um, so basically, part of it is the numbers you hear about, um, for example, the Afghan military. Arguably, by the time that Kabul fell, the Taliban had larger numbers and better equipped soldiers. And in large part, that was the numbers, for example, that President Biden, when President Biden gave a press conference after the Taliban took over, where he essentially blamed the Afghan military for failure and said they had 300,000 soldiers. The U.S. government knew that was not true. When Biden gave that speech, um, West Point, for example, put out a report that said that the Afghan army actually had a a force that was probably less than 100,000 soldiers. So the U.S. the president is contradicted by American government reports. So that, that's one issue. They, they, can't, they, they, they were doing the best they could to defend their country, although, again, with the caveat that many of these people are warlords, many of these people are human rights abusers themselves, it wasn't, it wasn't a pretty picture on either side, including the forces we were propping up. But, but I would say that, again, we, we want to talk about, oh, we've done enough for Afghanistan. Like, when we break that down, what did we actually do for Afghanistan? That the, the trillions of dollars that we spent on the war, most of most, Afghans didn't see that money. That money went in Afghanistan to oligarchs and political figures and warlords and went to Lockheed Martin in America, to uh, the military contractor SOS International that I talked about last time I was on this program that was involved in a corruption scheme with the American-backed Afghan president. I mean, that's who saw this money. And so a lot of, again, American planes, American bullets, that's where that money went. And it's not, it's not that we've invested so much in Afghanistan. We just invested a lot in war. And the the people who lost the most were the civilians getting killed out in rural Afghanistan. So if the Taliban were were better armed and equipped than the Afghan forces, most of that support came from Pakistan. Does Pakistan have any responsibility to deal with the consequences of this war since this is the outcome that they wanted? There are 23 million Afghans facing starvation. Now, obviously, the U.S. position is insupportable and this 3.5 billion trust fund that Biden's talking about setting up to get humanitarian aid to them, nobody quite knows how that's going to be accomplished and how you do get humanitarian aid to the people of Afghanistan. But should Pakistan be stepping up to the plate? Um, so this is a hard, this, this, for me, I, again, as US citizen and not a citizen of Pakistan, it's hard for me to dictate essentially moral responsibility. If I were a Pakistani citizen, I would probably be horrified at Pakistan's role in the conflict and my own kind of moral culpability um, in that, but I'm, I'm not. So it is harder for me to speak on those grounds. But I, I can say there aren't really any good actors here. Um, no, no one comes out of this smelling good. Um, and again, the people who are suffering are just like millions of civilians. But uh, and I can start, again, as I'm a citizen of the U.S., I do feel a large amount of moral responsibility for our role in this conflict and what we've done wrong. So, Zach, who is helping the 23 million Afghans facing starvation? Um, I am probably not the right person to ask this because I'm not um, I'm, I don't actually work in the aid field. 
Um, I imagine A groups, but from what I understand, I, basically my expertise is more in corruption. Um, and I can tell you more of how we got into the situation than how it's fixed. Um, but there's, there are certainly A groups that are trying to help. Um, but just from my understanding, things are going very badly in general. So in terms then of the 9-11 relatives of victims getting half of the frozen funds, $3.5 billion, which is a considerable amount of money, it's not unanimous from what I understand. Well, what happened apparently was in September, a group of 150 relatives of September 11th victims won a default judgment after suing targets like al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and this is a case called Havlish. And then they went and served a writ, did they not, on the Federal Reserve of New York to mm-hmm. seize the money. And where does that stand now? So Biden is sort of siding with that. Is that the mechanism but here? The fundamental problem, whatever U.S. courts say, there, there's a fundamental problem with seizing this money because it's not the Taliban's money. Like, if I, I don't know, like, let's let just do a hypothetical example, right? Let's say I'm related to, like, let, let's take the January 6th coup plotters, right? Let's, let's say I, I'm a relative of one of the people who died there, and I say, you know what? I want to blame um, America fostered these people, and so I want to take money out of bank accounts of random other Americans to pay for it. That's essentially the same logic that's being used here. Like, you can't, like you're just taking someone random's life savings to pay victims of a crime that they had nothing to do with. It's essentially it's what you call that is collective punishment, and that's not a legal thing to do. Well, as I say, amongst the 9-11 families of the victims, there's some groups that don't agree with what's happening, and that's the September 11th Families for a Peaceful Tomorrow. What do you know about that that organization? What kind of percentage uh, would that represent? Because I imagine most of the, the families of victims would be happy to receive you know, what's going to be a lot of money, isn't it? I, I honestly can't speak to that because that's way outside my expertise. I, I Right actually know much of um the breakdown of how 9-11 victims feel about this right Uh, i mean you can speculate like that and wouldn't shock me but i don't know right but there is this group called september 11th families for a peaceful tomorrow that apparently are not agreeing with this decision on the part of the biden administration i do i do applaud them for that i think that's a excellent and bold step from them right so what do you think then can be done in terms of getting the American people to understand their moral responsibility to what's happening in Afghanistan? And Because you're one of the few voices that are pointing out that this is completely unjust and, in fact, borders on criminality. So what can be done here? Do you feel like you have any advocates on Capitol Hill? It's government choices, right? Like we made choices about how many refugees we would take, Right. That, that was a policy choice. We could take more refugees. If we open the doors to refugees, there will be people who want to come. If we make the process easier, if we make it more friendly, if we bring people out of these refugee camps, if we help smuggle people out of Afghanistan, there are people who would like to come relocate to the United States. There are people who are hiding from the Taliban right now for fear of being killed who would like to come to the United States. We could help them. And, that's, and that, to me, it's not as much... A civil, and we can help them without going to war. Like this isn't saying go to war, reinvade Afghanistan. This is saying help people get out, use the resources of the U.S. government to help that. And that I think is I think is a choice that we are that the government is currently not making. And I don't 
unfortunately, again, I don't think the American people have much demand for that. I think, unfortunately, and it depresses me, there's very many people who live here who would say, we don't want anyone. We don't want to help at all. And the only way you change people's minds, for example, is, again, have, like, someone's going to feel much more kind about an Afghan refugee, maybe if they live next to one, if that's their neighbor, they've made friends with them, that they realize they're kind people, they're, they're people just like them. And we're never going to have that kind of change unless we actually accept the refugees. So that, that I think it just has to come from the government first. And right now, it's not. Well, what is coming from the government is what we're talking about, this decision yeah. to take the $7 billion in Afghan funds in the Federal Reserve Banks in New York and give half to the families of victims of 9-11 and half into some kind of trust fund that's supposed to get humanitarian aid to the Afghan people who are starving. Uh, 23 million people are facing starvation in this winter. But surely this decision will cripple the country's financial system. People won't be able to get money out of the banks, and that would compound the starvation situation. You'll have not only a starvation crisis, but you'll have a financial crisis. Yeah, it it will lead to death. Also, there's something I want to also point out here that's really important to think about, and just the whole justification for this, right? Which is, um, and this is where I can actually speak to what I really know, and and also to link to the point we made earlier. So you, you asked, like, how is the Taliban better equipped than the Afghan military? In large part, because let's say you were an Afghan commander or you were an American commander in Afghanistan and you wanted you, – you had troops at a base, right? And you needed – these troops, they need ammo. They need MREs. They need water. They need gasoline. They need an internet router. They need TVs maybe. All these things you have to truck across the highways, right? And the thing is you're trucking through territories controlled by Taliban uh, – ISIS, Khorasan province, militia commanders. And the way to get your equipment through is you pay a bribe. And that is actually in large part how the Taliban or different groups within it were supporting themselves. It's the same story I can tell you about in Iraq, for example, that we, the U.S. was actively funding the people they're fighting through logistics contracts. And so, again, to bring this back to the point about the money, now that same principle will apply here. If you separating from the money that we're giving to the um, victims of 9-11, you have that $3.5 billion that's supposedly going back to Afghanistan. And they're saying, well, we, we can't, we're taking this money because the Taliban's, we can't give it to the Taliban. How do you think these aid groups, if in, in theory, are going to actually do work in Afghanistan? They're going to pay bribes to the Taliban. If they're working outside of Taliban territory, they're going to pay bribes to ISIS or to a local militia commander, whether that was U.S. government-aligned, Pakistan-aligned, Iran-aligned, like Russia-aligned. The people, people who are bad actors will be getting part of this money. That's how it's worked. That's how it's going to work. And so this whole thing of, oh, we can't, again, we can't give the Taliban this money. Where do we think it's going to go with this anyway? It, it, just, it will just be done under the table, illicitly, in violation of international law, instead of awkwardly in a way that makes us embarrassed and looks bad because we lost a war. And I think that's just, again, I, I think doing illegal things that worsen situations because it's politically expedient is a mistake um, versus just taking our medicine, which really sucks. <laughs> and so that, that's my kind of opinion on that, too. Well, Zach Kaplan, I thank you so much for coming on today and giving us a, a bit of a wake up call and pricking our conscience about what's happening in Afghanistan. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I think it's Again, this is all this is kind of I'm speaking from my own personal experience, just researching corruption in Afghanistan. 
But right. I think this is all very important to kind of see this clearly and see the harm that we're causing. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Zach Copeland, an investigator for the Government Accountability Project and a columnist for The Guardian, whose investigations have included opposing science denial legislation, revealing police and judicial misconduct, and uncovering corruption in Afghanistan. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking into how Fox's propaganda encouraging insurrection and opposition to vaccination is undermining our military and national security. U.S. forces give the nod. It's a setback for your country. Bombs and trenches all in rows. Bombs and threats still ask for more. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jen Senka, who's an award-winning documentary filmmaker, media activist, and author of the new book based on her documentary of the same name, The Brainwashing of My Dad, How the Rise of the Right-Wing Media Changed a Father and Divided Our Nation, and How We Can Fight Back. And she's the co-author with Mike Lofgren of an article at Common Dreams, It's Time the Pentagon Pulled the Plug on Fox News. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jen Senko. Thank you, Ian. I'm very happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, and we are clearly a divided nation. But when you consider the power of the U.S. military, which is unchallenged, it's challenged, but it's certainly we spend more on the military than our 10 closest rivals and others combined, a trillion dollars a year roughly, and it clearly is a powerful military that we have. But at home, we're very fragile. So we're projecting all this power abroad, but at home, we're fragile, we're fractured. The FBI is telling us that the most dangerous threat to our national security is white supremacy and militias and domestic terrorism. And the fact that you have a propaganda outfit like the Ministry of Truth, Fox News, that propagates insurrection, they encourage insurrection. They encourage people not to get vaccinated in the midst of a pandemic. They are, by all reasonable definitions, a danger to to our national security. So why is it that in the Pentagon and in military facilities around the world and here in the United States, all of our soldiers and sailors and Marines and airmen are watching Fox News? Yeah, I think that it's totally unacceptable and I'll even go so far as to say it's a little insane that with all of the attention on right-wing militias in the military, many of the people from the January 6th insurrection were from the military, um, including higher-up officers, um, that we would you know, end with all of the uh, Secretary Austin saying that you know, we have to, you know, tackle this problem. And he even asked the military to help him with all of that, that they would still have a source. You can no longer say that Fox is news. Anybody knows it's not news now, except for the people who watch it. But there's no more pretending. And 
I see it as part of a bigger problem in that the right for the past 50 years has intimidated media and, you know, Democrats and uh, other areas of the government into believing that there was a liberal bias in the media. So I am wondering if part of the hesitancy, if there is hesitancy, it seems there is, um, to get rid of a source like Fox partly comes from that, from that fear of we don't want to be accused of liberal bias, but See, it's the loudest voices voices in the room that get the attention. And Fox and the right wing has made it their mission the, over the last 50 years to be the loudest voices in the room. And we were cowed. I, when I say we, I mean, you know, people that didn't watch Fox, like wherever that worked um, in you know, the government and the media, especially people. And they bent to that. And I think that it, 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 by allowing ourselves to bend to that, we have come to this incredibly and dangerously fractured point in our country. And it's no doubt that Fox is anti-American. It's propaganda. There's no doubt it lies. It boldly lies now. It blatantly lies now. And for it to, to be in the military when we're trying to fight right-wing extremism is incomprehensible to me. Well, apparently, as far as I can tell, Fox News, in terms of the Murdoch family, they've sort of lost control of it, that Lachlan Murdoch, the heir, is supposed to be in charge, has moved to Australia. So yeah, I don't know that you could run an American news company from Australia because the time difference is quite inconvenient. And apparently it's pretty much in the hands of Viet Ding, this right-wing uh, lawyer, Opus Dei guy, who is apparently pretty much running it. And I don't know what the agenda is, whether they really understand what they're doing in Murdoch's case, it was all about money, I think, uh, and power. He's, of course, a kingmaker. That's how he, he gets his jollies, you know, puts Tony Blair in and then gets mad at Tony Blair in the UK and gets rid of him. And now, and he's done the same in Australia where he controls the press, you know, three-quarters of the press in Australia is controlled by News Corp. Mm -hmm. And they put this born-again guy, just like Mike Pence, Morrison, who the Australians refer to as a god-botherer, or a happy clapper because he's one of those people that get into those charismatic trances and dances around and has the spirit of the Lord, you know, vibrating through his body. So that's what he does. But at the moment, it's hard to understand what's going on there in terms of any kind of rational and reasonable control and what their agenda is. So the only explanation I have is that it is out of control, that that Tucker Carlson does what he wants to do and nobody can stop him. And I, mm -hmm. go ahead if you, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh no, that, that, that's fine. Um, you gave uh, a lot to chew on there. That's really important. I think that the Murdochs don't care what 
this other person in charge is doing. In fact, Murdoch, like you said, he's a kingmaker going way back to um, Australia. He's gotten people um, elected and then when he tires of them or they don't give him what he wants, then he gets rid of them through the media. He knows how powerful media is. I And being that they are the owners of News Corp, um, they know what's going on. Murdoch one time even said that, um, and this is in my book, um, that he didn't think a, a dictatorship would be so bad. So, I mean, going far right is very beneficial for these billionaires. And I think there's sort of a sociopathy that happens with them where they're so disconnected from uh, reality and or, or the way ordinary people live in life that it does just become about power, more power and um, more money. And it's runaway, it's runaway capitalism. So I think they do know what's going on. I mean, Murdoch purposely chose Roger Ailes to set up Fox. And the purpose of Fox, I, I don't like to say news in the same sentence as Fox. <laughs> um, the purpose of Fox was to demonize Democrats, which is the other half of the country, at least, you know, our country, and to create Republican voters so that they could ideally go after this libertarian idea of a free market economy. And it goes, it goes way back. You know, if you look at uh, history, you know, there's the Lewis Powell memo in 1971. It even goes back further than that, like to the Birch Society. And this is, this has been their aim. So I don't think, I don't think Murdoch, the Murdochs have the capacity to really care I see. So that's not that they've lost control. If they don't care and they're happy with what's happening. And again, I'm speaking with Jen Senko, who's an award-winning documentary filmmaker, media activist, and author of the new book based on her documentary of the same name, The Brainwashing of My Dad, How the Rise of the Right-Wing Media Changed a Father and Divided Our Nation and How We Can Fight Back. And she's the co-author with Mike Lofgren of an article at Common Dreams. It's time the Pentagon pulled the plug on Fox News. So, of course... If the Pentagon did pull the plug on Fox News, that would be challenged in the courts immediately under the First Amendment. But I think what you're suggesting in the article is you don't have to switch to MSNBC or CNN, that's sort of in the middle of the sort of ideological spectrum. But you could have ESPN on, couldn't you, instead I mean, of Fox? Yeah, or C-SPAN. The, the Army and Air Force Exchange Service, um, which which controls most military retail facilities, actually sent a memo to their managers suggesting that sports rather than any news be shown, you know, in the common areas. So if they really, if they want to <laughs> chicken out, you know, um, they could do that. Or like you said, ESPN or uh, C-SPAN. And then there's even a group called Vote Vets, uh, which had specifically asked for a ban on Fox News at the Department of Defense, uh, Defense facilities. So I don't know um, why the Pentagon is, um, well, we do know why the Pentagon is doing it. I'm sure that they think like this will really, really create a, a rumble, maybe even tip into 
violence or something like that. I don't know, but... Well, but they're yeah. all sworn to, to protect and defend the country from all enemies, foreign and domestic. Right. And Fox News is now a domestic enemy. It is encouraging insurrection. It right. is encouraging anti-vaxxing, which affects the readiness of the U.S. military. And we've already had the governor of Oklahoma, one of these Trumpsters, try to stop the National Guard there from obeying the Pentagon's orders to right. get vaccinated. The Pentagon have been vaccinating people forever. If they shot the soldiers up during the Gulf War with some vaccines, supposedly, against anthrax and chemical weapons, which were highly dangerous vaccines, then the COVID vaccines have been proven to be incredibly safe. So it's just craziness, it's, and it's irresponsible, and somebody's got to step up and show some cojones here. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, Fox is, is responsible, I believe, for brainwashing almost almost half the country. And speaking of half the country, the, the, the country isn't all Republicans. I mean, it's half Democrats, if not more than half. And we pay taxes for the military to protect us and be on our side. So we don't, we don't want to be paying our taxes for the military to be propagandized to hate those who are Democrats and not on board with this far-right ideology. Well, let's talk about the Trump cult because of your book, The Brainwashing of My Dad, how the rise of the right-wing media changed a father and divided a nation and how we can fight back. Because when you talk about brainwashing, that's what cults do. Mm -hmm. And Trump clearly has a cult-like grip over the Republican Party. They're, the moderate traditional Republicans are terrified of him, and they're all, and he's basically creating a kind of loyalty test. And uh, if you fail the loyalty test, you get booted out of the party, like they booted out Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. And in doing so, they justified the RNC justified what it's doing, saying that generally the sixth insurrection was legitimate political discourse. So the party itself is now endorsing insurrection and violence. So it's a crazy time. So give us just in the last few minutes here a picture of how you were able to deprogram your father from this right-wing cult thinking, this Trumpsterism, and how that could be extended nationwide because it's very hard to reach these people. They're being conned, but it's a dangerous situation for the nation and the world. It, It is a very dangerous situation. Um, well, it took, it, it didn't happen overnight. Um, first of all, my parents used to email each other, you know, Democrat, Republican, you know, like, uh, inflammatory emails, but my mom learned how to source. And so she would, she would source and she'd send an email back to my dad. And for years that didn't seem to affect him, but, as he got older, they, they moved to a, um, a senior community, and in the move, my dad's radio broke, and he used to be in love with, with Rush Limbaugh. I mean, really, like, just, he would marry Rush Limbaugh if, you know, he weren't married to my mother. Um, and that broke, I think, that broke the, 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 the habit, it broke the 
the neurotransmitters or, or what have you. And um, there was a big change immediately. And then uh, after that, then um, he went into the hospital for a kidney stone. And my mom uh, was worried about the email piling up in his uh, inbox because they had these old computers. And um, she asked me to uh, delete some of the emails. And I did. And I said, they just keep coming. And so she got the idea to unsubscribe him from them and subscribe him to some more progressive <laughs> emails. And she did that. And when he came back, he, he read both. But so, you know, it took, it took about, maybe it took like a year, but it, it worked. He uh, actually ended up voting for Obama in my last interview with him um, for the movie. You know, he was negating everything that he had said previously, like, I don't believe in the minimum wage. I don't believe in gay marriage. Uh, uh, there should be no Department of Energy. He just negated all that. Yes, gay marriage, if they want to do that, sure, fine. Minimum wage, yes, I believe in that, you know. So um, it was a remarkable thing. It's it's not easy because many of these people have been living, uh, you know, have been, this has been going into their brains for years and years and years. Um Right. Well, that what it's telling us then is that if these people in the Trump cult and in the right wing Fox bubble and Sinclair and Salem and OANN and Newsmax and Breitbart, if they're all in that bubble, it's very hard to reach them with facts and information. But if they do get exposed to alternative information, then the change can happen. So I guess that's the challenge, right, to find ways to get these people in these red states exposed to alternative information, or in fact, real information, as opposed to lies and propaganda. Right. It's, I think, you know, my dad was a good case study. You take away that media, and then he went back to being himself. He was no longer um, a zealot, you know, an extremist, which he had been before. But there's there's some good stuff going on. If I can mention just briefly, um, there's a couple groups now that are grassroots that are starting to deal with the media, uh, you know, real fake news, <laughs> uh, like Truth Tuesdays. They demonstrate in front of Fox every Tuesday at noon, and it's starting. These things are starting to pop up in, in different states, and that's a good thing. So there's good things happening. Finally, I just hope it's it's not too late. So just in closing, it's the group that does Truth Tuesday, demonstrating in front of Fox uh, yeah. Studios. What's the group called? Um, it, well, it's it's um, it's an arm of uh, the group Rise and Resist. Rise and Resist. Okay. But the direct action is Truth Tuesdays. Okay. Well, yeah. thank you so much uh, for joining us, Jan Senko. Yeah, thank you, Ian, for having me. It was fun. And again, I've been speaking with Jan Sankos, an award-winning documentary filmmaker, media activist, and author of the new book based on a documentary of the same name, The Brainwashing of My Dad, How the Rise of the Right-Wing Media Changed a Father and Divided Our Nation, and How We Can Fight Back. And she's the co-author with Mark Lofgren of an article at Common Dreams, It's Time the Pentagon Pulled a Plug on Fox News. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, 
please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.